And our second reading is from the Old Testament in Nehemiah, one of my favourite characters and books. I think I might have spoken about Nehemiah here before, but we'll just read uh, the first chapter of Nehemiah. And I hope you're wondering whatever's the connection between that and Nehemiah. (laughs) Okay, so Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah's prayer. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon... I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. Now this man, of course, was the king, Nehemiah's employer, and he wanted to go and ask the king for some time off work. So that's uh, the reason why he prayed and asked God to give him success in the presence of this man. Shall we pray? Father, we do thank you so much for your word that's been preserved for us down through the generations to our generation so that we can read your word and know your mind, and know your purpose, your plans, that stand firm through all generations. And as we come to you tonight, uh, in from a world that um, is far from right, is far from following you, uh, we just ask that you will open your word to us, and show us the way that we should be going in the world in which we live, that we might live for your honour, and for your glory in some way. We ask this in your name. And for your glory. Amen. I recently went to a a men's uh, prayer breakfast in in Trowbridge. And um, the the guy was a a typical Londoner. He was from London. And he started off by saying, I want to get to to know you guys a little bit better. Uh, He said, said, I hope you don't mind. So I'm going to do the same with you. I'd like like to get to know you a little bit better tonight. And he said, I'm going to ask three questions. And these were the three questions. 
So here we go. He said, put your hands up if you've ever told a lie. Hmm. Okay? Put your hands up if you've ever stolen anything. And that means even a pencil or a rubber from school. The third question I want to ask you, I'm getting to know you. <laughs> the third question is, have you ever really disliked somebody? What Jesus said, if we hate somebody, it's like murder. So tonight I come to Bath to some thieving, lying murderers. <laughs> no, it's just to illustrate that we've all sinned, haven't we? We've all sinned and fallen short of God's perfect standard. And so we're all in the same boat here tonight. So pleased to meet you. <laughs> there we go. Now, the recent book, uh, the, prodigal, the Prodigal God, I, I read it because of the title. I thought, how can you call... I mean, we think of a prodigal son as somebody who's wasted money extravagantly uh, on, on silly things, don't we, when we think of the prodigal son. But uh, does anybody know what the word prodigal actually means? Well, the noun is recklessly extravagant. Recklessly extravagant. And what a description of God our Father that is, isn't it? Recklessly extravagant. Second, uh, the second... What's the word? What's the word? Um, the second meaning is, number two, is having spent everything. Having spent everything. We'll come back to that in a, in a few moments. Well, let's, let's have a look at the, uh, the, the story that Jesus told in Luke 15 to start with. And I want you to notice, first of all, if we can, who Jesus was talking to. It's very important to get the, the parables of Jesus into perspective. Who was he talking to? He was talking to two sets of people. And I think it describes our... Uh, modern world in, in, in a very uh, accurate way today. He was speaking to tax collectors and sinners, the despised of the um, despised of society, the, the, the ones who you wouldn't mix with. Tax collectors and sinners. And he was talking to the Pharisees and teachers of the law. Those people who were revered and respected Two very different groups. Irreligious sinners and religious law enforcers. Two very different groups. Both ends of the spectrum. And the story Jesus told spoke directly to both of those people. It's not just a story of a prodigal son. Because Jesus starts in verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. And what Jesus said about the second son is as important as what he said about the first son. Jesus said the young, the, the, that there was a man who had two sons. Today's world, as we look at it, I know we can't put people into boxes exactly, so there are people that are going to be in between these two extremes. 
But today's world is divided, isn't it? There's the younger son mentality. Those who reject religion in all forms, living for self, for pleasure, freedom from all old-fashioned restrictions, be what you want, live how you want to live, paying little or no regard for authority, parental laws of man or of God. And when we're all free to do what we to, to do as we please, the world will be a better place, free of all these shackles of Christianity or, or laws or anything. And so therefore, that I, I know that is not true of all people, obviously, but there is as we look at the world today, there's a lot of things going on that, to me, is unbelievable. Because of the word freedom is being taken completely out of context. The world's view of freedom is that you can just do exactly what you want. It doesn't matter about anybody else. Do exactly whatever you feel you want to do. Do it. And then you'll find freedom. But the opposite is, is true, isn't it? The more we're free to do what we want to do and think of self first, second and third, we find that we're entrapped in a prison to please ourselves. Some of the things that are, are happening in our world today because we're going so far away from the word of God and unfortunately some of these things are creeping into some churches. Um, uh, we went as a family to take Beth to, I'm sure Beth won't mind me mentioning this, to um, the hospital in Bristol, uh, Southmead Hospital. And, and I took them up, I drove them up, and they went in to, to Beth had to have some tests. So I went for a walk. And I was confronted at, just outside of the hospital with a big banner, Pride Month, follow the, follow the Pride Trail, and a big flag. And I think that description, pride, is quite apt, really. But the things that are being said today, it is an affront against God's word, first and foremost. Genesis chapter 1, God created man in his own image, male and female created he them. And if you say that in the world today, you're being judgmental and you're not being compassionate. You're not, you're not being fair because there are people that think they're free to do something that is not natural and is not right and is not factual. Uh, I don't want to dwell too much on, on those sort of things, but you get the drift of what's happening in our world today. Is it any surprise that the last uh, survey in this country came out, you probably heard about it, Less than 50% of the population in our country now would describe themselves as Christian or religious. We're living in a secular society, a humanistic society, where we please ourselves more and more and more. Many churches are closing down. Many churches to try and stop the drift away from uh, Christianity and, and religion are trying to be all accepting now we have to, it's, it's a fine line, and I do struggle with this myself, I have to be honest. We have to be all accepting of everyone. 
Because Jesus died for everyone. For all those people out there as well as for us. So we have to be all accepting. But we cannot condone some of the lifestyles that are being um, spread abroad today. We cannot condone it. We cannot bless it. And that's what the church is trying to do, to be all accepting. And I, I do struggle because we have to accept the people but not the sin. And it's difficult sometimes to do that because if you don't approve of what somebody's doing, it's like you're against them. That's what it, how it comes over. And it's, it's a very fine line. But we must be all accepting of everyone. The sad thing is that a lot of these things are even coming into families, even into my family, our family, with our grandchildren. And the stuff that is being taught at schools today is absolutely mind-boggling. And, and, and parents are not told about what the children are being taught in sex education and so on. So we're living in a very dangerous world and a, very, a world that is going away from God's word. So that's a younger son mentality that is so prevalent in our world today. The older son mentality. Get to the second son. Now he's a stay-at-home type. He abides mainly by his parents' rules, keeps the laws best he can, attends religious meetings, takes part in religious activities, practices self-control, try to please God even. Things which are right and not wrong in themselves but can breed wrong judgmental attitudes towards the other group or wrong motives to gain man's and God's approval, for example, for their own ends. Now, the older son, when the younger son came home, instead of welcoming his brother home, he got angry and he was resentful. He had the wrong attitude, the wrong reaction to what was happening He said, all these years I've slaved for you. And you've never given me anything. He was doing these things with wrong motives. What a challenge to me when I read this book. That sometimes we can just do things that might be right things for the wrong motives. Maybe to gain praise of man. Or even to gain favour with God for ourselves. You have to be so careful. It's a challenge. The Yoder son mentality. Now, Jesus was talking to these two groups of people. The, the, the two groups of people that were tax collectors and sinners, but Jesus ate and drank with them. He got alongside them. And it was the religious people that criticized Jesus for it. And so he had to tell this story of the two sons because he was talking to those two sets of people. That's the context of the, the story that Jesus told. So what's the connection with uh, Nehemiah, I wonder, with this story? Well, looking at the the story of Nehemiah, it's a fantastic book and one of my favourites. Please read it if you've got time, it's not very long. Now, the history of Israel swings between these two ways of life. Time and time again, Israel strayed away from God, going their own way, following false gods, Casting off restraint in pursuit of freedom. But finding it led to slavery, sometimes literally. But when they came to an end of themselves, when they came to their senses, in repentance, crying out to God, guess what? A recklessly extravagant God forgave them 
time and time again and restores them. And I used to wonder, why does God keep doing that to Israel? Why doesn't he just forget them and take on a, a good English country or something? And forget Israel, forget the Jews, because they're so fickle. But I'm so glad that he did. And he's promised to restore them. And he's restoring them to the land today. You know, God's purposes and plans stand firm through all generations, the word of God says. And so he's bringing them back today. Even the bad things that are happening in the world, even the war in Ukraine, God is using it to bring his people back, the Jews back to the land that he promised to do. Now, Nehemiah lived in a time of judgment when God had dispersed them and Israel were in exile, Babylonian exile. Uh, Nehemiah lived around about 423, 40 BC, apparently. And, and at the time that Nehemiah lived, Israel were away from God. They were away from his word. They were away from his land that he promised to give them. And they were away from his temple. Now, Nehemiah was a king's cupbearer. Now, he had quite a good job, really, because although he had to put his life on the line, he had to taste all the wine before the king could drink it, make sure it wasn't poison. So he was a happy chappy, and uh, he had quite a good job. And so he prayed that, that, that he would be able to get some time off of his uh, occupation, and he went into the king's presence in chapter 2, we read, and he'd never been sad in the presence of the king before. And the king noticed, he said, he said to Nehemiah, what's up with you? You're usually smiling and chatty and happy. Why are you looking so sad? Are you ill? Why are you so sad? And then Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid, verse 3 of chapter 2. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should not my face look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Now you and I might think, why would somebody get so upset about a heap of ruins? A pile of rubble, a pile of stones. The wall of Jerusalem was broken down. Why are you crying over that? Why are you fasting and praying before God about a pile of stones? Well, Nehemiah recognized the importance of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was, is, and will be a very, very important city. When we hear of reports of our society breaking down, family life breaking down, family values out of the window, law and order breaking down, when we hear about all these things about our country, what do we do? What's our reaction? Is our reaction like Nehemiah's? He fasted and prayed and wept. It's a challenge, isn't it? When I went to church this morning, went to a little chapel, Baptist chapel in Trowbridge, there was a lady on the door and, and I said, good morning, like you do. And I said, how are you? She said, fine. Um, she, said, she said, you? And I said, yeah, fine, thank you. I said, it's everybody else, isn't it? And she said to me, yeah, everybody else needs sorting out, don't they? <laughs> and that is a sort of mentality that we can take on, isn't it, sometimes? We think... They're wrong over there. Those people are wrong. They're wrong. They're wrong. But we're right. But that's not the attitude that Nehemiah had. Did you see how he prayed? Just see how he prayed. 
I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself, and my father's house have committed against you. He didn't start accusing different groups of sin or going away from God. He included himself. He identified himself with the sins of his nation. And if we want to see revival in England, I think the church, myself included, we've got to start confessing our sin and identifying with it and not casting stones. He that was without sin, let him cast the first stone. It's a challenge, isn't it? It's a challenge. Well, he confessed the sin. Then in verses 8 to 9 we read, he remembered God's word. We have to pray in accordance to God's word. Because sometimes we can be praying for our own will and our own things that we want, not what God wants. We need to know what God wants. And Nehemiah knew what God wanted regarding Jerusalem from the word of God. He remembered God's word. Nehemiah knew from scripture how important Jerusalem is to God or was to God and is to God. He knew that God had chosen Jerusalem as a dwelling for his name. Nehemiah knew the scriptures. God had chosen Jerusalem as a dwelling place for his name and his presence forever, the word of God says. I'll give you some references if you want to take them on later. I can give them to you afterwards. Deuteronomy 12, 11, 16, verse 2, 5, 11. 2 Chronicles 6, 6. 2 Chronicles 7, 16. 33, verse 7. And we'll read two of them. 2 Kings, if you want to look at this one. 2 Kings, chapter 21. 2 Kings 21, verse 7, the end of 7b. God says, In this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. God's name is on Jerusalem. That's why Nehemiah was so upset. Daniel chapter 9. Ezekiel Daniel, get there in a minute. Excuse me, Ezekiel Daniel. Daniel chapter 9. And again, chapter 9 is is Daniel's prayer. And Daniel was the same as Nehemiah. He confessed the sin of the nation and identified with them. And he ends his prayer in verse 19. Read through that prayer when you get home, Daniel chapter 9. He said, O Lord, listen, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, hear and act. For your sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. Your city and your people bear your name. In Revelation, Jerusalem is is described as a city that God loves. It's a very important city. Lots of things, important things have happened in Jerusalem, haven't they? And there's a lot of controversy over Jerusalem today. I wonder why. God's put his name on there forever. There's another verse in scripture which says God has made a covenant with Jerusalem. This is a Jerusalem covenant that God has made. And God's covenants stand forever. If they don't, then your new covenant doesn't stand, does it? God's covenant with, with Jerusalem. The city that God loves. It's unimportant really whether 
Jerusalem is important to the three world religions. It doesn't really matter. It's important to God. That's what matters. Do you wonder why there's so much controversy today over Jerusalem? It's, not, it's a lovely place, but it's not the best city in the world. You know, London, Paris, Washington, D.C., much better. But Jerusalem, why is there so much controversy over Jerusalem? Because Satan knows that it's a city that God loves and where things are going to happen. Lots of things have happened there, haven't they? Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Israel. Jesus was preaching and teaching in the synagogues in Jerusalem. He was put on trial in Jerusalem. Jesus was handed over by the Israeli leaders, religious leaders, over to the Romans, the Gentiles, to be crucified in Jerusalem. Jesus died in Jerusalem. He was buried in Jerusalem. Three days later, he rose again from Jerusalem. And there's an event that happened 50 days later after Pentecost when Jesus died. The Feast of Weeks. Uh, sorry, after Passover. 50 days over Passover. The Feast of Weeks, which we call Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came as Jesus had promised. And there's an event yet to happen. Jesus is coming back to the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. Jesus wept over Jerusalem himself, let alone Nehemiah. So I think, you know, we really have to put Jerusalem on our prayer list. The Bible says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Because when Jerusalem is at peace, it will be when Jesus returns. Well, back to the two sons, because our time is gone. Back to the two sons. The younger son, the rebel, the one who went his own way, the one who went after prostitutes and spent all his money. What was his reaction? He repented. He said, Dad, I'm sorry. I've, I've sinned against you and against heaven. And what did Dad do? Put on the best robe, invited him into a feast. There's going to be a feast one day. The feast of the wedding of the Lamb. We've been invited if we repent and turn from our wicked ways. It's a challenge, isn't it? That's the younger son. He joined in the feast that his father had prepared for him. What happened to the older son? What was the end of the story? We don't know what happened to the older son. He was still outside with his resentment and his bitterness and his judgmental spirit. The good news tonight is that regardless of our lives, rebellious, whatever you've done, wherever you are at the moment, or whether we're self-righteous and we've judged people, our recklessly extravagant God forgives us when we come to him in repentance and when we accept the finished work of the Lord Jesus upon the cross when he died for our sins. The wages of sin is death. The gift of the recklessly extravagant God is eternal life. So I hope these thoughts have been helpful and a challenge. They were a challenge to me uh, when I read the book and so I wanted to share that with you tonight. But please, check up on what I've said. (laughs) 
Look it up for yourself. Read Daniel's prayer in chapter 9. Read through Nehemiah if you've got time. And see how God restored Jerusalem through Nehemiah. God uses people to do his work. He, he, he wants to use us. He doesn't want us to be redundant. He wants to use us in his purposes and plans. And he used Nehemiah. Why? Because he repented. He repented in prayer. And he wept and fasted for his nation. Well, I'll leave that challenge with you and with myself uh, this evening and pray that God will bless his word to our hearts.